Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With me are John Celentano, our business editor, and Jim Fryer, our managing editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence. It's a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. Intelligence looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. The 2023 Volume 4 is in production now. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com slash intelligence. Well, John, we're back from the Thanksgiving holiday, and I think you're going to tell us about a couple of things, right? U.S. Cellular and IHS Towers. Yes, indeed. Leslie, there's still lots going on as we uh, work our way through the end of the year and uh, through the holidays. But, um, you know, in August, U.S. Cellular uh, basically declared that it was undergoing a strategic review. The net net of that is I think they're deciding whether they should sell the company in parts. You, you know, U.S. Cellular still owns and operates its own towers. They're sort of the last of the the largest um, mobile network operators to do that. And um, they are building uh, building out their 5G network. They do have Spectrum. Uh, they are using the latest and greatest uh, equipment, but they're not making any money. They're losing subscribers. Their revenues have been flat. And so the question is, uh, are they able to continue in, in that mode or would they be better off being acquired or broken up? So... You know the 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 article said it is what's it worth? What's U.S. cellular worth as a whole or in parts? So I took a look at <clears throat> what uh, what the company might be worth um, if it was sold uh, or, or or overtaken in whole, meaning um, all its um, uh, radios, all its uh, subscribers, all its towers, and um, at at the market close on November twenty fourth. Um, you know, it had a had a, a value of about three point eight billion dollars. Uh, the stock has uh, actually doubled uh, in the past year, more so since the announcement in August that it was uh, undergoing the strategic review. But um, you know, the the number of subscribers had declined really uh, about three percent to four point six million year over year. Um, it did maintain its full year guidance for uh, revenue at 3.1 billion. That's still down about 1% year over year. Uh, and adjusted EBITDA of a little under a billion, uh, that was up 2%. But when you weigh all of that against, um, its current performance, uh, you know, it's, it really only commands a multiple of about 5.5 times, uh, um, EBITDA, which, um, puts its overall value at about five to six billion dollars for the enterprise. So um, so the question is, you know, would it really be more valuable if it was broken up and sold off in parts? So what would what would that amount to? Well, they have some pretty decent spectrum across low, mid and high band uh, frequencies. Uh, they do have 600 and 700 megahertz in low band. 
600 is what uh, T-Mobile is using for its um, uh, uh, low band service, uh, what it calls its extended reach, and certainly would be interested in getting that that uh, spectrum. Uh, they have a lot of, um, um, they have a big chunk of uh, mid-band in 3.5, 3.45 gigahertz CBRS and C-band, for which the U.S. sellers spent $2 billion dollars. Uh, and, um, you know, when you add in the other spectrum holdings, they have it, they, they have about $3 billion worth of spectrum. And, uh, you know, depending who's buying, uh, that could, uh, that could come in, uh, higher than that. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is the towers. Uh, they had done business with you vertical bridge a few years ago when, uh, vertical bridge bought some towers from them, uh, what, uh, what us cellular considered non-strategic towers. At the end of the third quarter, they were actually operating uh, over 4,600 towers of their own and generating a leasing revenues of about $100 million a year. <clears throat> um, pretty good pretty good cash flow, tower cash flow. And, you know, looking at public towers, um, they might sell for a multiple of around 20 times. So that would put them, the towers worth about $2 billion dollars. Um, the caveats with that, of course, is, uh, you know, if they do a lease and a sale and lease back, um, where U.S. seller would remain the anchor tenant, uh, would that hold up if somebody bought the operating company itself? So there's a couple of, a uh, couple of issues there, but, um, so, you know, when you look at who might buy them, um, certainly the big three mobile network operators could take a, a, a close look. Um, they have, um, you know, it could complement their, their footprint where the big three tend to operate in, um, in metro markets. The cable companies possibly could take a look at parts of U.S. cellular where they overlap. Uh, certainly the cable companies have already been poaching U.S. cellular customers and they have CBRS licenses that the cable companies might be interested in. Uh, there's been rumors about the hyperscalers like Amazon, Microsoft, or Google, but I, I, I think that's that's uh, the uh, on the outside. These guys uh, are more interested in kind of connectivity. They don't want wireless infrastructure. Of course, you have the private equity firms like KKR, or Brookfield, or Digital Bridge, or probably come in, kick the tires, either looking for breakup value or or some ways of maybe improving the operating company if they kept it all together. So. Um, nothing formal has been announced. We're still waiting and seeing, waiting, uh, waiting for some decision to be made as to how this might play out. But it certainly has raised a lot of speculation in the in the industry and uh, and and the among observers as to to where this may lead. So we'll keep a close eye on it uh, going forward. Um, the other story we did uh, that would be of interest to the tower folks is uh, IHS Towers. Uh, they're London based, but they operate primarily in Africa. Uh, Middle East and Latin America. Uh, their organic revenue for the uh, for the quarter was up thirty one percent year over year across the uh, the global markets uh, where it operates. But when you normalize the local currencies to U.S. dollars, um, uh, revenues took a sharp decline, about ten percent, and EBITDA uh, was down as well. And this was mainly due to a seventy percent currency devaluation of the Nigerian naira against the U.S. dollar. Now, Nigeria is IHS's biggest market. It accounts for about 58% of the uh, the revenues uh, for the quarter. And uh, those revenues were down 10% year over year. 
adjusted EBITDA was down about 16%. Um, so, you know, the company is doing uh, well on its fundamentals. It, it's it's uh, total tower count is just under 40,000 in the 11 countries that it operates in Africa and in the Middle East and Latin America. Uh, Nigeria is its biggest market. You know, it has 16,400 towers there and Brazil, its next biggest market with um, almost 7,400 towers. Uh, the company built 415 new sites um, in the quarter. That's up from uh, 278 the quarter before and up from 380, 385 in the third quarter of the year before. Um, so far, it's uh, built uh, 891 sites, um, most of that in Latin America. It is, is projecting uh, a, a 1,250 new site builds for 2023, about 200 in Nigeria and 750 in Brazil, and then the rest uh, amongst its other uh, markets. Um, but it's, um, you know, its tenant base is growing. Uh, it's up uh, almost to 60,000. It has a co-location rate of almost 1.5 per tower. And the lease amendments were up, um, you know, 17% year over year. So, um, you know, the fact that it, it took a hit on its um, normalized revenues expressed in U.S. dollars sort of misleads the fact that the company is doing pretty well Um um organically overall uh it did spend uh 105 million in capex in the quarter that was down uh about 40 percent compared to the year before um largely driven by reduced capex in nigeria and fewer new sites built in sub-saharan africa um particularly uh south africa uh, another big market for it but these declines were offset by an increase in new site builds in latin america so you know, it's it maintained its full year ca uh, guidance for revenues, adjusted EBITDA, free cash flow, and capex. Um, it uh, it did point out that it it continues to spend on what it calls Project Green, and this is um, the idea. The idea with Project Green is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at uh, at its tower sites by uh, fifty percent by twenty thirty. That's you know compared to a baseline of twenty twenty one. It's relying on, you know, uh, renewable solar wind energy, uh, deploying batteries and fuel cells to reduce the reliance on diesel generators and, um, and uh, you know, improving the energy efficiency at its sites using the LED lighting and smart cooling systems. So it expects to spend about 90 to 100 million on Project Green in 2023. So, you know, all in all, uh, you know, an interesting company. It's uh, it, it, it builds itself as the fifth largest independent multinational company in the world behind the likes of American Tower and uh, Celnex and uh, Indus Towers. But um, uh, it does hold a, a, a decent chunk of, uh, of the global tower market and, uh, and it, it continues to show growth. Uh, just on a final note, it um, uh, in, in its conference call, it addressed the uh, issue that its major shareholders, Wendell, and MTN Group um, had raised issues in July about um, our board representation and voting rights. Uh, the company says that they're continuing to talk to these uh, folks about uh, um, how to resolve the issue and uh, are making progress on those goals. It's John, <clears throat> John uh, do you ever see where uh, there could be a possibility where these some of these international players might Try to get a toehold in the in the U.S. market, or is everybody just staying away and letting the big three uh, 
handle the U.S.? Yeah, I think it gets down to what they're willing to pay and what the values are. Some of these international players uh, tend to be focused on their regions and don't go too far afield. You know, it's almost an anomaly that companies like American Tower and SBA and PTI have the minor part of their tower holdings in the U.S. and in the domestic market when the majority is international. Um it's possible we might see some incursion by some uh, international players, but I think they have their hands full in their in their uh, local markets or their local regions. And um, it's not obvious who might make an effort to buy into the U.S. market. And, and certainly at the multiples that, that are out there, uh, it may not be financially attractive. So, Jim, the activist investor Elliot is calling again, for a shakeup of crown leadership. Tell us about that. Yes, Leslie. Well, this this occurred also about three years ago, two and a half years ago, uh, where this firm Elliott Investment, um, known as a quote-unquote activist investor, um, very, very hands-on with with their investments, um, for for better or worse, and... um, even back two and a half years ago, they were they were calling for changes at, uh, at at Crown Castle as far as how they were operating, and um, apparently none of those none of those things were heeded very well by Crown. Uh, they went on about their business and uh, developing you know fiber. They were already well into fiber by then, but but you know continuing along that path. Um, so Elliot rears its head once again uh this this past week and um calling for a shakeup in the, in the leadership of crown uh that said it that they quote suffer from a profound lack of oversight by the board and it's contributed to irresponsible stewardship and flawed financial policy those are their words um they they said they'd like to see crown review their fiber business and um would like to see an optimized incentive plan for executives and uh, just general improvement of the corporate governance. Um, you know, a lot of times you could sort of just dismiss this and go, what do these guys know about towers? Um, however, they, they did get some kind of uh, legitimization, legitimacy. So they got some legitimacy from um, market analyst, uh, Eric Lupcho of Wells Fargo, uh, who who knows his knows his business, and uh, he actually sided with Elliot and saying that they they pretty much agree with the insertions that uh, Crown is in need of a refresh refreshment uh, a, a makeover, if you will. And um, Lupcho said that um, the the Crown is starting to see demand growth improve in small sales, but the balance sheet. Uh, concerns they have are still weighed heavy on their stock and uh, that um, said that Elliot is proposing a plan that based on return on invested capital to provide better incentives on capital allocation while asking for a a board makeover and amendments to its bylaws. And uh, they think that might have made it more challenging to uh, to them to nominate uh, alternative directors. 
So, um, um, actually, uh, Luke John from Wells Fargo uh, went on to say that a JV partner or potential sale of parts of its fiber business would free up capital to where the market currently implies its value. So, um, you know, this has got it got a little bit of credence from uh, from market analysts, which gives it a little more a little more validity. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, one could dismiss it by saying, "Look, you, you know, shut up and invest, and uh, you know, don't talk about what you don't don't know about." Um, I should also say, a side note: I noticed that uh, Elliot is an investor in Phillips sixty six, the petroleum company, and um, are very uh, very vocal there as well. So, uh, the tower market is and Crown is not the only one who is um, subject to uh, uh, to to Elliott investment and and their very strong opinions. Any uh, any indication, Jim, as to uh, who might be a, a a buyer of the fiber business? Should that get to that point where they're spinning it off? Uh, no, I, uh, um, not that I not that I know of. And in fact, it, it, it's hard to tell if this still is landing any kind of punches on on Crown. Uh, although the Crown CFO uh, Dan Schlanger uh, issued a statement saying that uh, you know basically is a good perfunctory statement that we value the views of our shareholders as we seek to better understand their perspectives on our strategy. Performance and business objectives um, <laughs> sounds to me kind of like a you know piss off and invest uh, <laughs> instead of our, our kitchen please. Um, but <laughs> Schlanger did did say because apparently these guys control um, uh, two billion dollars in crowns, so that makes them you know formidable. Yeah. And as somebody you've got to you've got to pay some. Yes, you do. Service too. So anyway, he's uh, Schlanger said. You know, we look forward to reviewing Elliot's materials and are open to commencing a constructive engagement with Elliot. And the board of directors remains confident in Crown's executive leadership. So um, that's where it stands. Whether whether this you know has any any impact or not, and makes the move on the uh, on on their fiber assets. Um, will remains to be seen so we'll yeah. uh we'll keep on that actually we just had a good article it just came out martha degrasse uh our yeah. very valued uh contributing analyst uh just just did a nice a nice piece on that as as well so if you want a deeper dive on that um see uh see martha's uh martha's article that uh ran in uh friday's edition she made a reference to the 50 page presentation that Elliot put together. And, uh, I had a look at that. It was, it's pretty impressive. I don't know if you, you'd agree with the conclusions, but, uh, they certainly went out of their way to, to try and, um, look at all aspects of, uh, of the argument they're making. So interesting. Yeah. Did it really have pictures of the crown castle in the sky <laughs> that she was referring to? Yeah, <laughs> they did have some graphic that looks like a, a castle in the sky. So uh, interesting. Great. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, John. Um, so in Washington, the FCC had its first oversight hearing 
with a subcommittee of the House Commerce Committee since having its full complement of five commissioners. And the what the FCC recently did on net neutrality and digital discrimination basically took up most of the hearing. The intense questioning began immediately after the introductory comments. GOP lead lawmakers got to the point right away. They, uh, the agency's recent vote to restore net neutrality, which it calls restoring Internet freedom, was the main topic. Inside Towers reported the commission uh, proposed reclassifying broadband as a Title II telecommunications service. Uh, the rationale for this is... Uh, there is no federal oversight of the internet, and uh, Chair Rosenworcel has said, you know, it's there's a patchwork of state laws, and there really should be a federal law. GOP lawmakers call what the FCC did Biden's broadband takeover. Um, House Communications and Technology Subcommittee Chair Bob Latta, he's a Republican from Ohio said the plan defies logic. He said this combined with the recent vote to ban digital discrimination, you know, that's like redlining in real estate. He said, we'll discourage broadband deployment at a time when Americans need it most. He said the recent partisan actions taken by the commission causes me great concern. So the chair of the full House Energy and Commerce Committee Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Republican from Washington State, called the actions a heavy-handed regulatory approach that was designed to regulate monopolies. The last time we had this debate during the Trump administration, the Democrats claimed that repealing the net neutrality rules would be the Internet as we knew it would end. And she said, actually, broadband investments and speeds are up. She uh, is promoting a light touch regulatory approach, which she said could, quote, allow companies to adapt and thrive. She said new digital discrimination rules will put burdens on Internet providers. Uh, ranking member Frank Pallone, Democrat from New Jersey, remember he used to head the committee, said if the Republicans want to focus on broadband, that's fine with me. The FCC has built a successful broadband affordability program. It's also released the third version of its new broadband maps. Americans are tired of waiting for a broadband provider to serve their neighborhood. So Pallone is continuing under Trump since the previous administration gave up its authority over broadband. There were 250,000 related complaints to the FCC. And he said those have not been acted on. Net neutrality would enable the FCC to deal with this. FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel testified that bringing broadband authority back to the agency will enhance network security and eliminate discrimination in broadband access. And she said the FCC's digital discrimination rules were required by law. Commissioner Brendan Carr, remember when the FCC voted on this, he had like a 20-minute, I oppose this statement. Well, he reiterated some of that in the hearing. He said, six years ago, Americans lived through one of the greatest hoaxes in history. CNN proclaimed the end of the internet as we know it. 
Activists said the internet would slow down. And did any of this come true? No. He said speeds are up sixfold. Title II was never about improving the online experience. It was always about control. And as far as the digital equity plan, he said it gives the FCC the ability to micromanage and have veto power over internet service. Rosenworcel said the rules would enable none of these actions. And she said the dire internet doom predictions didn't come true because about 12 states stepped in with their own net neutrality guardrails. Commissioner Jeffrey Starks said, we commenced a proceeding to ensure blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization didn't happen. As far as the digital discrimination rules, they're meant to prevent digital redlining. He said, stopping digital discrimination will empower individuals everywhere. Um, Other topics that were brought up, she was one was the affordable connectivity program. It needs more money to fund it or else it'll run out of money next April, probably. That's based on the 22 million households that rely on it now. So she asked for more money for that. She also asked lawmakers again to approve the three billion in funding to fully reimburse small rural carriers for their efforts to rip and replace untrusted network gear from Huawei and ZTE. And she stressed once again to lawmakers that the FCC needs to have its auction authority restored so it can have some spectrum in the pipeline ready to go. So it was quite the hearing and net neutrality, unfortunately, took up most of the the bandwidth. I guess that's a wrap. Thank you all for listening Inside Towers Week in Review. And a reminder for a complete rundown of all the week's stories, check out our Saturday edition. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.